And amen. Well, good morning, church. I hope you're doing well. Uh, today, if it's your first time, my name is Billy. I get the privilege to be uh, one of the pastors here. It's such an incredible honor to get to do uh, that. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to John chapter 4. Uh, John chapter 4. While you do that, a quick announcement. Uh, if you are here uh, and you are 55 and older, so uh, a lot of people that are, that are 55 and older think we don't have old people in our church. Uh, I'm not telling you you're old. I'm just saying, hey, there are a lot of people uh, that are um, what we would call seasoned saints is what we're kind of doing it. And uh, they have come to me, uh, uh, one couple in our church, and they are interested in gathering up uh, kind of the older generation in our church for just a time to eat dinner together, get to know one another. Uh, I guess uh, I have three kids, so y'all have more time than I have on Sunday nights. And so they're going to quarterly... Uh, start just a, we're going to call it a seasoned saints gathering. We couldn't think of a nicer name than that, so that's the nice name that we came up with. Um, and, and it's going to be over at Bob and Suzanne Dixon's house, and they're uh, just passionate about getting people together, eating together, and just having a good time. They've done uh, this in the past as well. And so if you're interested in that, uh, they'll be outside at the tent, at the blue tent, uh, or I'll be out there. I'd love to get you their address. But tonight at 530, they're going to be gathering together, so you guys are welcome to go. If that offends you, then you don't have to go. It's just an open invite. So uh, I love you no matter how old you are in this room. So uh, don't shoot the messenger. Um, John chapter 4 uh, is where we're going to be this afternoon. Uh, John chapter 4, verse 43. I say this afternoon. This morning we're going to be in John chapter 4, verse 43. And we're going to look at two incredible stories uh, of, of Jesus' life. And so if you've been here, you know we've been walking through uh, the Gospel of John. And so this is a biography of the life of Christ. And so uh, what we're seeing is we're really getting to know who Jesus is, uh, what Jesus came to do, uh, and really how he deals with people and what his mission uh, actually is. And so uh, we're calling this series The Real Jesus uh, because really uh, that's what we're trying to look at is there's so many people in our context and in our culture today that would label themselves a follower of Christ but the Jesus that they're following is not the Jesus that we see in the Bible. What they've done is conformed Jesus to their own image and basically said, okay, I'm going to follow Jesus, but uh, if I don't like something that Jesus said or did do something or something that Jesus did, then I'll just kind of ignore that and then take the parts of Jesus that I like and just follow that one. And the only problem with that is that you're not a true follower of Christ. You're following uh, Jesus when it's convenient. And so what we've been doing in this series is really looking into who was Christ. And in his word, he's revealed himself to us. And he said that life, abundant life, is found in following him uh, the way he's revealed himself. And so that's what we've been looking at. And we've seen some incredible stuff already. And this morning is no different. Uh, so John chapter 4, I'm going to start in verse 43. And we're going to look, look at two uh, really incredible encounters here. Uh, with Christ. And so let's read together, starting in verse 43. It says, After the two days, uh, he left for Galilee. Okay, let me catch you up. So last week we talked about the Samaritan woman and Jesus' encounter with this Samaritan woman in the town of Sychar. And so uh, basically he led her to, to himself and she became a follower of Jesus. And then she went out and really sparked a revival in this Samaritan city of Sychar. And what happened from there. Uh, was that they talked Jesus into staying two days with him. So that's what we get. And then after two days, now he's left to go up to Galilee, which is north. So you got Jerusalem, uh, Samaria, Sychar, and then Galilee. So he's traveling up 
uh, north is what he is doing. Verse 44, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. That's an interesting statement, and I'm going to talk about it in just a second. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, which is where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Which is just an interesting response from Jesus, right? This guy's sad, he's in a pretty rough, desperate place, and it seems like Jesus responds back to him in a, in a non-compassionate way, but you're about to see why he responds this way. And then the royal official said, sir, just come down before my child dies. So again, Jesus kind of starts us off with a very interesting statement, and that statement is that a prophet is without honor in his own country. What's he talking about? Well, remember, Galilee is Jesus' hometown. This is where he grew up. Uh, 30, by this point, Jesus is about 30 years of age, so he spent the majority of his life in this area of Galilee. And the folks there welcomed him because it was his hometown, but they did not honor him as God. And so that's what he's talking about is they, uh, they welcomed him in, but they did not see him for who he was, meaning they didn't recognize him, unlike the Samaritans. And it's kind of rubbing Jesus the wrong way in some ways of uh, obviously he knew, but you still see some frustration that Jesus came through Samaria, which is not even a place where Jewish people would have lived. They would have been seen as kind of outcasted, uh, half-breed people. And they took Jesus at his word. And this lady gets saved, and then they took this lady at her word, and then they came to Jesus and more got saved. And so revival is breaking out in Samaria, and these are not even the Jewish people. Well, then he goes up to Galilee, and he's dealing with a lot of Jewish people that are there. Jesus himself is a Jew, and they're not recognizing Jesus for who he is. They're seeing him just as a miracle worker and not as the Son of God. And so I think there's an interesting connection here for us to look at, and that connection is familiarity and unbelief. Many times, uh, not only in the Bible do we see these two things uh, kind of work against each other, but also today where we live, uh, a lot of times when we're familiar with church or familiar with God, many times it can be a roadblock to us believing in Christ. And so they, were, they would have been familiar with Jesus because Jesus would have grown up with them for over 30 years at this point. And, and this familiarity with Jesus hindered them from believing that Jesus was God. You probably would have heard things like, well, yeah, that's Jesus, but his mom's Mary. Like, I know his mom. This is Jesus. There's no way he's that. Or, or maybe uh, something else of, yeah, he's a normal guy. We used to play with, with Jesus in the yard. And so uh, they had this view of Christ in such a way that he was fully human, which he was, but because of that, they could not recognize him as fully God. And then also today, many times we see this in our church. If you were here last week to see uh, the baptisms, you heard this in people's stories 
all the time, that they had grown up in church and they were familiar with church and they were familiar uh, with Jesus, but uh, they weren't saved. They weren't true believers. They just kind of grew up going through the motions and doing what they knew uh, Christians should do, but at the end of the day, they weren't surrendered to Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. And so many times, just because we're familiar with Jesus doesn't mean that we're a true believer. And so if you're in this room and you've grown up in church and you're familiar and you know a lot about Jesus, don't assume that you are a genuine follower of Christ because those are two different things. And that's what Jesus is doing here is he's making a distinction uh, between two different types of belief. And the first type is belief in Jesus as a miracle worker. And then the second type is believing actually in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so even in the face of these people uh, that are rejecting God, that he's already said are not going to honor him, uh, one thing I love about Jesus is he doesn't give up on them, you know. And, and maybe you're in this church today and you say, Billy, well, if that's me, doesn't it seem like Jesus would be frustrated with me? Well, Jesus has an incredible way of even in the face of our rejection, he's still compassionate and gracious and he moves towards us, which is exactly what he does here in Galilee. He doesn't run the other way. He goes to Galilee knowing what would await him there. And so he continues to reveal himself. He's a God of great and tremendous grace. And so this time we see he's in Galilee and he's doing something specific. He's seeking out an individual, a desperate father whose son is on his deathbed. And it's an awful situation and it hits very close to home for me because I have young kids and I have a son. If you do, you should read the same way. And can you imagine this father uh, he, it says he's a wealthy royal official. So that means he would have had a lot of money, he would have had a lot of power, he would have had a lot of influence. But the thing that money and power and influence can't help you with is to save your son when he's on his deathbed. And so you can feel the helplessness of this situation here. He's desperate. So he travels 15 to 20 miles uh, over to Galilee to see this miracle worker that he'd heard about. Uh, it doesn't say that he was saved. Uh, at this point, we can assume that he was lost. He was not a follower of Christ, but he had heard about this miracle worker named Jesus that had turned water into wine, and he was hopeful that maybe this miracle worker uh, could save uh, his son. And so, again, keep in mind, he is a, a royal official, meaning he would have worked for King Herod. If you know anything about King Herod, uh, this is the same guy that tried to kill Jesus when he was young. And so this would not have been a very received thing where he was. And so for him to leave and come see Jesus uh, was, was kind of a big deal. But that's all about to change. Verse 49. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus replied, Go, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and he departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was alive. He was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, his servant said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. I want you to underline that statement. He and his whole household believed. This was the second sign that Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. So again, this is an amazing encounter, an amazing story. Jesus literally heals a boy, changes his body, literally heals him from death 20 miles away by the power of his word. 
Like, like, just take us, like, let that soak in. Like, many times we read these stories in the Bible, and we feel like we're so removed to it that we miss the awe that we should be in when we read a story like this. Write this down. Do not ever, ever, ever doubt the power of God. Don't ever doubt the power of God. By his word, the earth and universe came into being. By his word, he spoke, and this little boy went from dead to alive. I mean, can you imagine... Uh, this father, and if you're a father in the room, you can, uh, and, and just think about on his way home. You know, he had talked to Jesus. He knew he was a miracle worker. At this point, he wasn't a believer yet, but he's like, hey, this is my last shot. He said that the guy's, my boy's going to live, so he took him at his word and went home. But can you imagine the walk home? He hasn't met the servants yet, and so he doesn't know if his boy's healed. The doubt, you know, like, man, it, it, I hope it's, it's true. God, Lee, I, man, this guy says, you know, I don't know if it's true or not, but I can just see him, like, talking to himself. But then the belief, maybe he can do it. If he can turn water to wine, surely he can do something like this. But then also uh, the expectation, like, man, my boy is going to be well. I, I, just, I, I just know that, that God has done something. And then he sees his servants coming down the road, and his servants are ecstatic. They're excited because they have the best news that this, this, son, this father has heard in a long, long time. Can't you imagine the joy that would have filled this situation? And then I can imagine him trying to communicate who he went and saw and what the guy said and all this different stuff. Of They're like, well, you're, where did you go? Who did you talk to? Who is this guy? And, and, and you can imagine him trying to tell them about Jesus and what he had said. And Jesus really didn't give him that much. Go, your son will live. You know, it's like, man, don't you wish the conversation would have been a little more than that? But Jesus like, direct, go, your son's going to live. And so he didn't really have a whole lot to say. All that he knew was that his son was sick. Jesus said, go, and he's going to live. And he's living now. And so he knew Jesus was an incredible, powerful, powerful person. And then my favorite statement of the whole story, he and his household believed. They all believed. So whatever he said, it led to his whole household becoming believers in Christ. And I don't want you to miss this. There is great power in a father's faith. A father's faith. There's nothing against women, nothing against against uh, wives in this room. But there's a statistic that I need every man and every father in this room to know, and I want to challenge you on this. 93% of the time, when a father gets saved first, the rest of the family gets saved. Think about that. 93% of the time, and I think it's 17 for the wife, and even less than that, single digits for, for the kid. But 93% of the time, when a, when a father begins to take their relationship with God seriously, the rest of the family is impacted greatly and begin to follow Jesus as well. And I want to speak to the fathers in the room today, and I want to ask you a question. Are you taking your relationship with God seriously? Are you growing in your relationship with God? Because the implications of you beginning to step out and beginning to take your, take your relationship with God seriously and asking your family to come with you are massive. But so many times... In our culture, what we see are the women are the ones driving Christ. I mean, I could do the statistics with you right now. Over three-quarter of the people that serve at our church are women. And so there's this natural passivity where men are passive towards the things of Christ that matter, and they're active towards things that don't really matter, sports, 
things that just don't have any eternal value. And there's nothing wrong with some of those things. But at the end of the day, God's asked us to lead in the things that matter. And what that is, is our relationship with him. That's another sermon. I can't go into that. Healing number two. Chapter 5, verse 1, we see the second encounter. This is at the pool of Bethesda. The word Bethesda means the house of mercy. So we know something is about to happen here with anticipation with that name. Verse 1, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. And now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, which means house of mercy, which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here, a great number or a multitude of disabled people used to lie. These would be blind people, the lame, the paralyzed. And then we get verse 4. Some of your Bibles may skip verse 4 there. I don't don't know if you've noticed that or not. But the reason it skips verse 4 is because uh, in our earliest manuscripts of the Bible... Verse 4 is not in there, but in some of the older manuscripts of the Bible, I don't know if you know this, but we don't have a copy of the the actual letter that John wrote, but what we have are 5,000 copies of that letter, which we put together to form our Bible. This is why we can trust it. There's no other book in the world that has that many manuscripts with it, but in some of the earliest manuscripts, this verse is not in there, and one of the reasons that it's not in there is because most textual critics believe Uh, that this was added later on as more of a commentary to help you understand. So we can learn from it, but it is not, uh, it was not in the earliest thing. So that's why most people don't put it in there. So there's your textual critic lesson for the day. Uh, Amen. All right. So verse four, from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each disturbance would be cured of whatever disease that they had. So It's very informative, so basically it's telling us why these people lay at this gate with these pools, because what was happening is that the waters would be stirred, and the first people that got into the water would be healed from their disease. And so you can imagine, uh, you talk about the ultimate wrestling match uh, of disabled people, this was it, right? They're fighting each other to try to get in this this pond, verse 5, or this this pool. One who was there had been invalid. Uh, or had been an invalid for 38 years. We're assuming he's paralyzed because he can't walk. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? Underline that question. Do you want to get well? That's an incredible, incredible question. A lot of people uh, in their suffering actually do not want to get well because it's become a part of who they are. But Jesus asked him specifically, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have nobody to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. So this guy kind of makes an excuse, right? Uh, Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And at once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and he walked. So again, just an incredible scene. Put yourself in this guy's shoes. Can you imagine laying here by this pool on a mat for 38 years. Think about it. How many, how many people are 38 years and older? In the, I'm not picking on my old people today, I promise. But you're 38 years and older. So you guys know, right? I'm only uh, 30, 35. So what would a 35-year-old know about being 38, right? So I can't relate with y'all. Uh, but I can uh, say that 38 years is a long time. We don't know if this man has been paralyzed since birth and he's 38 or if he was paralyzed later 
uh, because of an incident or something that happened, and he's, he's older in age. We don't know that, but what we do know is that he's been laying by this pool just wishing someone would get him into the pool for 38 years. Imagine that. You're paralyzed. You're known as an invalid. Just think about the title of that. You're invalid. You're not a real person. Nobody respects you or sees you like a real person. This person has become labeled this. And day after day, disappointment. All your hope is in healing in this pool. And day after day, month after month, year after year, you're let down because there's nobody to help you into this pool. Can you imagine the helpless feeling, the despair that this man would have felt? And then one day, this guy shows up. We have no reason to know, b- believe that this guy knows who Jesus is. Actually, we, he tells us later that he doesn't know uh, who he is. And so what Jesus does is shows up and he asks the question, do you want to be healed? Which seems like an obvious question. Yes, but the guy doesn't answer yes. He starts telling you every reason why he hasn't been healed. And so what we see is he's looking for healing in all the wrong places. He's looking for it in this pool when Jesus is standing right in front of him. And then literally in an instant, Jesus heals him. 38 years paralyzed on a mat and in, an, in, a, in a second, by the power of the word of God, it's all taken away instantaneously. I mean, just an incredible, incredible healing, an incredible, incredible miracle. And then Jesus disappears, like disappears. Before, don't even talk to the guy other than that. And, and I like to think that the reason they didn't have a conversation immediately, uh, most people believe because there was a crowd around. you got to think Jesus came into a multitude of paralyzed people and went straight to this one guy. And so you see he's focused on the one, which we'll talk about in a minute, but also I like to think once he was able to get up and walk, he probably didn't walk. He probably took off running, don't you think? And so Jesus was probably going to talk to him, but then couldn't because the dude took off uh, running. And then you're about to see he's going to get in trouble because the religious people aren't uh, happy about uh, what had happened here. Um, And so once again, I want you to see, never underestimate the power of Jesus. And don't miss out on what Jesus is about to do with this man. He could have just physically healed him and walked away and left. But we're about to see he actually comes back. Because Jesus is more interested in spiritual healing than just physical healing. Physical healing is important. But if this guy's physically healed for the next 20 years of his life and then he dies and then spends eternity separated from God, it doesn't matter. Right? And so Jesus loves him. And he loves him enough to come back. And so what does he do? Verse 9. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and the law forbids you to carry your mat. Leave it to the religious people uh, to ruin a celebration of life change. Verse 11, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up your mat and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, notice where the guy went after Jesus healed him. So he credited the healing with God because he actually goes to the temple to thank God for what had happened. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, see, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Just an interesting statement for Jesus to tell this guy. We're going to talk about what that means in a minute. 
the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at work, at his work, to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his, his own father and making himself equal with God. So again, leave it to the, the religious folk to put a stop to the celebration of this man's life change. I mean, this is kind of what came to my mind. Last week, we got to celebrate uh, eight baptisms. These were eight people that God has transformed their life, and they wanted everybody to know it. Could you imagine? I mean, we're celebrating. We're clapping. We're hearing their stories like we do. I mean, we make it a big deal, because it is a big deal. And uh, about that time, y'all see a guy kind of walk in, and we have a security team, so this wouldn't happen. But if it did happen, uh, they would walk down. And let's say this guy's just in a suit and tie. And it's like, man, this dude looks like a preacher. What is he doing? And he walks up on stage in the middle of the baptisms. And uh, he, he pushes me down, grabs my microphone. Um, and he basically says, hey, y'all got this all wrong. These people are being baptized and they have a T-shirt on. I mean, can you imagine that? Like, uh, here he would obviously probably get stoned to death but because we don't dress like that. But at the end of the day, in his mind, he's thinking, okay, these dudes aren't in their Sunday best, and they should be in their Sunday best. And he's, instead of being in awe of what God is doing in the life of people, he's worried about what the people are wearing, right? I'm worried about this dude just got out of jail three months ago, and God has transformed his life. And they're worried about what he's wearing in there. Well, this is the same literally situation. Can you imagine this guy getting healed, him standing up, and them coming up and saying, Hey, buddy, I know you've been paralyzed and on this mat for 38 years, and now you can walk, but, hey, we're going to need you to sit tight. I actually stay put on that mat. And he would have lived on this mat for 38 years. So you can imagine using the bathroom on this mat sitting on this mat, sweating on this mat. I mean, this is this like, I mean, some of y'all's yoga mats, you know, or whatever, them will workout mats where you do abs and all that. I don't do abs. So at the end of the day, if you do, you know, they kind of get sweaty and they start smelling a little bit. But you can imagine living on a mat for 38 years. I mean, this thing was nasty. And Jesus says, pick up your mat and you go. And the, and, the, and the Jewish people come in, and the Pharisees, and they say, hey, you need to sit tight because you, it's the Sabbath. You're not supposed to be walking around in here on the Sabbath. It's literally one of the dumbest things I've ever heard in my entire life. But for them, they thought they were doing the right thing. And they're pointing to a calendar. Meanwhile, this dude's like, look at my legs. Like, I can use my legs, right? And you see, that's exactly what religion does to us. And we have to understand this. It takes our focus off of Christ and life change and what he can do in the life of people. And it puts the focus on legalism and rules. Like that's what religion does is it takes our eyes off of Christ. And the Sabbath principle anyway has to do with God working in our lives. It's literally about resting on one day of the week so that we can focus on God and be restored in God and do as much in six days as other people do in seven days, right? So at no point would Jesus ever say that the Sabbath had anything to do prohibiting the work of God in a person's life. At no point was the Sabbath ever about hindering God's work in the world. And these guys somehow had created some rules around it. And notice the statement that Jesus makes to the man when he finds him in the temple. He says, see, hey, you're well again. 
stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Again, this is just an interesting statement. What could be worse than 38 years of physical paralysis? I'll tell you what could be worse. 38 million years, eternity separated from God. And that's what Jesus is telling this man. Is he's saying, listen, you understand what suffering looks like, but there's a suffering that's worse than physical suffering. And it's spiritual suffering, separated from God. And that's what he wants him to know. You see, Jesus wasn't just interested in physically healing this man or any other person in the Bible. He was after holiness in this man's life. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And holiness only comes through genuine belief in Christ. You see, you got to understand this to understand what Jesus is saying. You see, when we believe in Christ as our Savior and our Lord, the Bible teaches that we are made holy. It's called instant justification. When we put our faith in Christ, what happens is in one moment, all of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God is imputed to us. It is credited to our account so that now in Christ, God sees us as perfectly holy. Not because we've done anything, but because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. But then that's not it. The second part of salvation is Jesus then fills us with his Holy Spirit, and that Spirit begins to produce holiness in our lives. This is called progressive sanctification. This is what we talk about in heart and soul, if you have more questions about that. But it's this idea of God gives us his spirit, and that spirit himself begins to work in us so that our lives begin to be conformed to be more and more holy like the life of Christ. And the idea of being holy is just to be set apart. It means that we live our life differently. We live our life God's way and not the world's way. It means we're connected in relationship to God. It means we live for his kingdom and his purposes. We fight sin in our life. We deny ourselves and don't live in rebellion against God, but we surrender to him and we focus on being conformed to be more and more like Jesus. And ultimately, this was Jesus' purpose in coming to the earth. Like he does a ton of signs and wonders, and we're about to see those, but Jesus' primary purpose on the earth was not signs and wonders. His signs and wonders pointed to his real purpose, which was spiritual healing. And a lot of people miss this point, and you may have been to a church that misses the point on this because folks get obsessed with healing. They get obsessed with signs and wonders, and that's easy to do because they are very flashy. I mean, there are people that literally travel around as a healer in the name of Christ. And that's a whole different sermon. I'll talk about that later. But healing is a gift from God, right? There's no such thing as somebody that has the gift of healing and it sustains with them for the rest of their life other than Jesus, right? The gift of healing is a temporary gift given in certain moments where God's will is to use a person of God to heal a person in the name of God. Right? We see that throughout the Bible, right? There's nobody ever outside of Christ that could literally just heal on the spot. Even the apostles at times weren't able to do that. They come back to Jesus. Hey, what, what, we couldn't do anything with this guy. He says, okay, well, that only comes through prayer and fasting, right? He shows them these principles. And, and physical healing is great, but it's temporary. That's what we have to understand. This guy would later die and physical healing would not protect him from that death. But spiritual healing is greater, 
because it's eternal. And Jesus loved this man way too much, and he loves us way too much to just physically heal him. He wanted to save his life. He wanted to spiritually heal him at the end of the day. And so that's the passage. That's the best I got at teaching it. And so now what I want to do is I want to kind of put this on the bottom shelf so that we can have something to take away and apply into our lives as we leave here today. And so I want to focus on three things that John reveals to us about the identity of Christ. And so the whole book of John has been about revealing God to us. That's what this whole series is about. And so we want to see uh, who Jesus is, and we're learning that. And so we see a couple things uh, today. The first is that Jesus is the healer. Jesus is a healer. That's who he is, and he has the power to heal. Secondly, Jesus is not just a healer, he's Lord. Jesus is the Lord. He is the Lord of all. He is the God-man sent from heaven. He is God. And then lastly, Jesus is the hound of heaven, right? So hound of heaven, I'm thinking like a dog. I'll explain it later. I'm not comparing Jesus to a dog. I kind of am, but you'll you'll see it in just a second. All right, first thing is Jesus is the healer. Jesus the healer. So in this passage, we we see two very desperate situations. You get the desperate father who brings his son on his deathbed before Christ. And then secondly, you see the desperate paralytic who'd been paralyzed for 38 years sitting by a pool. And what we see about Christ is that Jesus steps into their desperation and heals them as an act of his grace and his mercy. And his first miracle was turning water to wine in John 2. And his second and third miracles demonstrate his power and authority over sickness and over disease. And it's truly amazing. I mean, he speaks and literally heals a child's body 20 miles away. Like, I mean, that, he's the best doctor ever. You know, he don't even have to be where the patient is and just says a word and poof, they're healed. This is why we call him the great uh, physician. He speaks and 38 years of paralysis disappears immediately. I mean, it's, it's un. Believable, And I think sometimes we just read over these miracles and we're like, yeah, that's the Bible. That's just kind of what happened. And we lose our awe and we don't slow down to think and put ourselves in the shoes of these people to think like, man, these lives change forever. And this is incredible power that God is displaying here. It's truly amazing. Whether it's these two stories or uh, we're going to continue to read in the book of John where you see Jesus is going to take a little kid's lunchbox, two fish, And a couple loaves of bread, and he's going to transform it to feed 5,000 people. What an incredible miracle. You're going to see Jesus healing a blind man in John chapter 9. You're going to see a blind man see. Or or in John 11, you're going to see Jesus walk up to a tomb where Lazarus is, and he's dead. Three days dead. And he says, hey, come forth, Lazarus. Lazarus raises from the dead and walks out. And so we're getting ready to see a ton of signs and wonders from Jesus. And what Jesus is doing is he's showing his power. And, his, and, he's, and he's doing it so that people can understand he is God. He has power over all things, even through the power of his word. But not only is his power amazing, what blows me away even more than that is his willingness. Like not only, I mean, he could have come and just literally showed his power off, but he chooses to show his power through transforming lives of people like you and me. 
Like, does that not just blow you away that God is interested in changing lives like you and I and healing and showing power in such a way that is practical in our lives? He's practical. He's willing to heal. I mean, just think about the leper in John 5 that comes up, or Luke 5 that comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus looks back at him. You remember what he said? I am willing. Be clean. Like he's willing, Jesus is willing to use his power to transform our lives. He doesn't have to, he chooses to, and he wants to. And listen, in a world of entitled, where people are just entitled, in an entitled world, sometimes we miss that. Jesus didn't have to do this. We don't deserve to be healed. But Jesus steps in and he chooses to do it anyway. What an act of grace. Or, or you got some people that just kind of write it off. Well, I know Jesus healed back then, but he doesn't really do that kind of stuff now. That's not true. Again, we're not creating our own view of Jesus based off how we feel, are we? No, we're looking into God's word to allow his word to shape. No, there's nowhere in the Bible that, where Jesus said that his miracles will cease because he went to heaven. It's actually the opposite. We see in the book of Acts we see the people of God being filled with the Spirit of God and that signs and wonders accompany the people of God wherever they go. And just because you haven't witnessed it in your life doesn't mean that God's not doing it all around the world. Honestly, I could load you up and go to a places in the world where you could hear some incredible stories of what God's doing. I could tell you some from here too, but at the end of the day, we just see God moving in this way still all around the world. And so here's the, here's the application. We must be a people that are willing to call on God often for healing in our lives and in the lives of other people. Like, have you thought about the fact that it was the Father that came on behalf of the Son and asked for healing and God granted that? How many people in this room, maybe you're not in need of healing, but you know somebody who's broken and they need Christ? And we have the privilege to come before God and intercede on their behalf and see God do a miracle in their lives. Listen to James 5, 13 and 16. Keep in mind, James is, is Jesus' brother. And so this is how he applied all of Jesus' ministry because Jesus has gone by the time to heaven, by the time he writes this. Listen to what he says. If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. Hey, if anyone among you is happy, then let them sing songs of praise. Hey, if anyone among you is sick, then let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. So therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in effect, if James would earlier say, you have not because you ask not. And so we must be a people that are not scared to ask God for the supernatural. Because he may want to use the supernatural in our lives or through us to bring somebody to faith. And so we must be a people that are willing to take God at his word. Did you notice the question that Jesus asked the paralyzed man? I, I told you to underline. Do you want to be healed? And it seems like an obvious question. But of course, of course this guy wants to be made well. But I believe Jesus asked this question for a specific purpose. It may have not even been for this guy, but for us to read today. And here's why. 
he may be asking you the same question this morning. Do you want to be made well? There's plenty of people in this world that, that they've become so comfortable in their sickness and in their disease and in their brokenness that it's become so much of a part of who they are that they would rather sit in sickness and brokenness and separation from God and make excuses about why their life sucks than they would receive the invitation of Christ and be healed. And you say, Billy, that's mean to say, bro. Like, why would you say something like that? I deal with people all day. That's what I do. I'm a pastor. I've been a pastor for now 12, going on 13 years. And listen, every time I see this, there's something about sin that's like a dark hole that just takes people down in it. They're miserable. I'm miserable. Everybody around them is miserable for them. But for some reason, they would rather sit and sulk in this brokenness than they would receive the hand of God to be healed. And in that moment, I'm telling you, what needs to happen is we have to be willing to step into their lives like this father was willing to step in and say, hey, I know you don't believe this right now, but God's got a better plan for you. And you may not believe it, but I'm going to believe it for you. And I'm going to keep telling you. I'm going to keep praying for you. And that's what some people need. And God may be asking some of you the same question this morning. Is there anything in your life, mentally, physically, emotionally, relationally, that's broken? Are you physically sick? Are you struggling mentally and emotionally with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts? Or is it relational for you? Your marriage is broken. Or maybe there's bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart towards another person. And maybe it's warranted or maybe it's not. Maybe it's an addiction that has just sucked you in. Or maybe like this father, it's not you that's in trouble, but it's someone else that you need to come to the Lord on behalf of. But I tell you again, and I'll remind you as long as you come to this church, do not underestimate the power of God and what the power of God can do in a person's life. The Bible is full of stories. This is what I love about Scripture. John's trying to talk us into believing in Jesus, and the way he does it is just start sharing testimonies. Isn't that amazing? Because God takes and specializes in taking broken people and transforming their lives. And then using that brokenness and that mess of a life and turns it into a message that draws other people in and saves them. That's what he does. That's who he is. Jesus is willing and able to meet real needs for real people. And it may not be in his will to heal every person in every situation instantly on this side of heaven. But it may be. And if it may be, then we need to pray as if it is. And then we'll let him sort out the pieces. And just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we believe God's going to save us. But even if he don't save us, we're not bowing. And we're going to keep praising him. Because this is who we are. We know God. Who he is is not dependent on him in one situation. Who he is is proven through he's been, who he's been since creation. Secondly, we see uh, John revealed Jesus to us not only as a healer, but as the Lord. We also see in this passage, again, that Jesus' primary interest was not just physical healing. It was spiritual healing. Uh, remember how he said it at the beginning. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will not what? Believe. That's what he's interested in. In both of these stories, 
Healing was not the end goal. It was a means to the end, which is belief, saving faith. That's what Jesus wants more than anything because it's eternal. You see, believing in Jesus as a miracle worker is not enough for spiritual healing. We must believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And all throughout the Gospel of John, this is exactly what John wants us to see. And in chapter 5, in five chapters, literally, John has already shown us that Jesus is the Word. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the truth. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And then he's shown us that Jesus is the healer. And John's whole goal, he's already given, given it to us in John chapter 20, is to persuade us to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Listen to John 20, 30 and 31. This is the whole purpose of his gospel. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, why? That you may believe that Jesus is the healer. Not what it says, is it? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's ultimate goal is belief. Jesus' ultimate goal is belief. And signs and wonders are a means to that end. You see, miracles were God's divine way of confirming Jesus' identity and his message. You won't listen because of what he says? Great. Watch this. Boom. But what happened is many people got obsessed with the miracles and they missed the miracle worker. And miracles are awesome. Listen, for so many reasons. Listen, there's so many reasons to study the signs and wonders. And that's what we're doing because they meet real needs in the lives of real people. They display incredible power. They produce awe and wonder in our lives. They reveal the heart of God to us. So many good things about them. And we should pray and pray for them often that God would do what only he could do. But we also have to be careful with them. We cannot miss the point of signs and wonders. It's easy to get caught up in miracles because they're flashy. And people literally are so obsessed with the healings and the miracles that they miss Christ. I mean, there's churches that literally they gather together and all they focus on the whole time are healings. And there's no mention of Christ. Only Christ to get what they want. That's not how Christ works. And that's what he's showing in Scripture. We don't worship Christ just to get healings. We worship Christ because he's God. And if he chooses to heal, then he will. And we pray and ask God to do it for his motivation, which is his glory to be spread to the ends of the earth. So we have to be able to see that Jesus has always used miracles as a means to an end. They were not the end goal. They were signs. And all good signs do a very, very important job. They point us to something more important. They communicate a message. What do I mean by that? I've never seen any person pull up to a stop sign and look and be like, man, that's a perfect color red. And those words, man, that font is incredible. Because when we see a stop sign, it is a sign that gives a message to us. Stop or you're going to die, right? And so Jesus is using miracles the same exact way. He's using them to communicate a message. And that message is clear in this scripture and is clear in the whole Bible that we need to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. He is Savior and he is Lord. And our greatest need in this world is not physical healing. It's spiritual healing. Notice what Jesus tells the paralytic in verse 14. Later, Jesus found him at the temple, and he said to him, See, 
you are well again. So stop sinning that something worse may happen to you. You see, Jesus didn't just heal the man at the pool. And he didn't just heal everybody at the pool. In the multitudes, he came to the one and he went back to the temple and then he found him and he communicated a message with him. And he knew because of the healing that this guy would believe the message. And here's the message. I am Jesus. He didn't even know his name before that, right? And he comes in, and the first thing this guy does is he goes to the Pharisee and says, it was Jesus that healed me. So he came and affirmed his identity. I am Jesus. I'm the Son of God. And you were healed on purpose for a purpose. And that purpose is to believe in me, to follow me. And the type of belief that Jesus was talking about is the type of belief that teaches us to say no to, no to sin and yes to God. And that only comes through genuine belief. What type of belief leads to holiness? Belief in Jesus as a miracle worker? No, you live like you want to and then call on Jesus like a Coke machine when you need him to do something if he's only a miracle worker. But if he's Savior and he's Lord, we follow him with our life every day. And we begin to be conformed to his image. What type of belief leads to holiness? It's saving faith. Belief in Jesus as both Savior and Lord. And the Bible teaches when we put our faith in Christ that we are justified. We're made right with God. We're credited with his righteousness. We're made holy in an instant. But not only that, we're given his Holy Spirit. And his Spirit helps us pursue God. And we grow to be more like Christ. We produce fruit like Christ. We are empowered to live on mission like Christ. And this is what Jesus is telling this man. Believe in me. Pursue holiness so that nothing worse will happen to you. Again, what can be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Spend an eternity separated from God. Doing life without God is worse than 38 years of paralysis. And you may look at me and you may call me crazy, but I'm looking at you and telling you that's what Jesus is telling this man. And you may be in here and you may be comfortable doing life without Christ at the center of it right now, but I'm telling you, it may not lead to 38 years of paralysis, but it's going to lead to destruction. And Jesus is here and he's interrupting your funeral. And he's saying, listen, man, don't do life without me. Life is, you were created by me, for me. Walk with me. Not only is he telling you that, but he's made a way. He's done everything necessary to reconcile you to himself and to give you abundant life through walking with him. So what type of belief do you have today? Is it genuine? Is it leading you to be more and more like Christ? Is Jesus your Savior and Lord, or is he just a part of your life? And then lastly, we see that Jesus as the hound of heaven. Let me explain that. Have you noticed in the past few chapters that Jesus has been seeking out individuals? Have you noticed that? Like in John 3, we saw Jesus go to Nicodemus, and we saw a, a conversation between him and Nicodemus, who was a religious ruler who needed to be born again. In John chapter 4, we saw Jesus go and meet with a Samaritan woman in Sakaar, and he led her to Christ. And, and then after she was saved, she went and, and started a revival where she was from. And then here we see Jesus' encounter with two individuals, the desperate father and the 38-year paralytic. So do you see the correlation with Jesus' ministry? He is focused on the one. Like, that's what he does. That's who he is. That's why he says, hey, it's better that I go to heaven 
Because now all believers can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if they'll live for me, and they'll begin to focus their life on investing in one person, then we can reach this world a whole lot faster than if I'm here just doing it one person. Because one person in the life of Jesus, one by one by one, is addition. But if all of us begin to live out this ministry that Jesus modeled for us, we begin to multiply. And this is the point of the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, C.S. Lewis once described God as the hound of heaven. This is where I got it from. By that phrase, he meant that God doggedly pursued him and would not let go. Lewis came into Christian faith as an atheist, in his own words, kicking and screaming as God's faithful pursuit won out in his life. And I told you last week that the gospel is personal, that Jesus meets each of us exactly where we are, in our mess, in our desperation, in our sin, and he saves us. And listen to me, I believe he works the same way today. He has not changed. He'll never change. He literally focuses on the one. And here's how I want to end our our service today. I just believe through the power of God's Spirit that the same thing that he's done for these two men, he's doing in the hearts of people in this room. And listen, you may not be a paralytic. Most likely you're not if you're in this room. But that doesn't mean you're not in need of healing. Maybe it's emotional, maybe it's relational, maybe it's mental. I don't know where you're at and I don't know what you're walking through at this point. But here's what I do know. God is here. And through his spirit, he's dealing with individuals all over this room. And here's my encouragement. Do not let this moment pass you by. Like God has already revealed himself and who he is. And he is the hound of heaven and he is pursuing you. And he's inviting you into life, abundant life. What could be more important than that? There's a scripture in James chapter 5 that I'm going to read again. James says this, the brother of Jesus, years after Jesus went to heaven. He says, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone among you happy? Then let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? And they should call the elders of the church to pray over them. And anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Then he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that they, so that you may be healed. And then he says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and it's effective. So again, I don't, I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're in trouble. The Bible says you should come pray. Maybe you're happy. Maybe you're just in a good place and joy is just filling your life right now. Then you should stand and praise God and sing. But maybe you're here and you're sick. And maybe it's, maybe it's physical sickness, emotional, relational sickness, just brokenness in your life. The Bible says you should come and pray. Or, or maybe you're caught up in sin. The Bible says you should come confess your sin to God and he will forgive you. And then confess it to a brother. And then he says, he will heal you. But you can't just confess it to God and you can't just confess it to a brother. you got to do both. But the promise is true today. Or, or, or maybe you're here 
And just like this father, there's somebody in your life that is broken and they need God to step in. And maybe you're here and you need to come and pray for them and intercede for them the same way this father did and believe that God can do what you can't do. He can change your life forever. So right where you are, I want you to pray. I want you to bow your head. And we're getting ready to sing. And as we sing, I just want to encourage you. I know it can be awkward to come to the altar to pray. Listen, and there's nothing special about an altar. But there is something special about this moment. And it's an opportunity to humble ourselves before God and believe God at his word. And so again, maybe you're here and you're in trouble or you're sick. You need to come pray. Maybe you're here and you're happy. You need to stand and sing. Or maybe you're here and somebody in your life needs a touch from God. And I'm asking you, would you come and pray? So Father, that's our prayer. Lord, as we sing this last song, God, would you move in the hearts of people? Maybe there's people in this room that they need prayer for themselves. God, we'll be here to pray for them. God, but I pray that we would not leave this moment without doing business with you. God, I know you're working in the hearts of people. So God, would you do what only you can do? And God, that's changes. Heal us. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. As we sing, would you come?